Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Welcome to The Art of Software, Episode 3. Today we are looking at the Internet of Things, also known as IoT, and the permeation of software. More of a technology space than a specific technology into and of itself, it embraces the marriage of hardware and software and a network infrastructure that enables new applications with a connectivity never seen before. These gadgets are weaving their way into the fabric of society as they support us in our daily activities, making mundane tasks easier and more natural working with the information flowing around us and about us. As the interconnections grow, so too does the potential of being connected with anyone and anything at any place at any time. Helping us usher in this new era of ubiquitous computing and communications is today's special guest, Trenton Shumay, President and CTO at Fingerfood Studios and CTO of the IoT Design Shop. Hey Trent, welcome to the Art of Software. Thanks, Martin. Uh, really good to be here, and, and definitely thanks to everybody that's uh, listening in today. Hopefully, we can uh, shed some light on the IoT and uh, and have a good chat here about some of the uh, kind of trending topics and things that are coming up um, in IoT. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about this topic. I, as I was talking about uh, this off air, I, I didn't quite realize that I've actually been involved in IoT since the what 80s, and uh, so you know. Um, you know, off and on business applications. For me, it's been more of an, the industrial space. Um, but before we dig into IoT, uh, Trent, can you tell us a bit about your yourself and your background, how you arrived at your current roles? You're quite busy. It it, uh, it looks at the uh, IoT design shop and you know, be, being busy with Finger Food Studios as well. So, what are you, what are your uh, ambitions there? Yeah, well, it's been it's been an interesting journey. I mean, I started my career definitely um, as a you know, kind of a pure play software developer where um, my interest was, you know, definitely in low-level technologies. I did lots of uh, driver work and sound and audio and graphics and, and things like that. And so I had always come at it from um, being pretty close to the hardware and the uh, underpinning sort of of the modern modern computer and platforms, you know, like that, entertainment devices, whatnot. Um, Finger Food Studios came about in about 2000. 2009, uh, because I saw the explosion sort of of, of mobile and, and the iPhone in particular was sort of the, the turning point for me that that sprung me out of um, what was maybe mainstream software at the time, developing larger applications and things like that into, um, you know, smaller devices, handheld, portable, mobile. Uh, what particularly interested me about it was that it was fairly obvious that uh, the machine uh brought uh, a bunch of things that were, you know, relegated to the desktop previously in terms of browsing the internet or being able to look things up online and whatnot um, into the the hand or the, the palm of the person using it. And, and in a mobile connected world, a bunch of things were possible that weren't possible for us, um, you know, prior to that. And so within the course of a couple of years, as everybody knows, we saw this massive transition in how computing happened from desktops and sort of connected internet devices and things like that to, um, you know, everybody using their phone for virtually everything. And so it created a great 
business opportunity for us to um, build apps and service that market. And, and that's sort of the foundation of Finger Food Studios, and that business continues today. But in around um, 2013, 2014, uh, the IoT trend was, was really kind of showing a lot of the same um, same traits or same characteristics that we had seen in mobile initially, where it was enabling things that weren't maybe possible or considered mainstream prior to that, but new kind of low-cost devices and ways to connect them to the Internet um, were emerging, like uh, Bluetooth Low Energy was probably the gateway for a lot of um, early devices. They would tether to a smartphone, and then the smartphone would take care of getting the data up to the Internet or the cloud. And that, you know, obviously fit very well with uh, the sort of mainline business in the sense that we were very invested in mobile. So we saw the opportunity there that, you know, essentially the mobile became the hub uh, for the first wave of IoT devices, or at least the consumer IoT devices, and that that piqued our interest and got us to invest in that segment. Now, um, in the past four years or so since then, it's obviously broadened quite a bit um, because low-cost, low-power connectivity options have started to become far more common. And so uh, today where we're at is, you know, um, basically sort of, oriented towards the hardware and the infrastructure side, uh, deploying these devices for our customers and our, our clients. And uh, it's kind of taken us, you know, through a real journey from, from pure software to hardware back to, um, you know, sort of software and infrastructure uh, again today because a lot of the hardware and connectivity problems are becoming easier to solve. So that's, that's sort of been my trajectory or my journey into the IoT um, I think there's still a long ways to go, obviously, um, but um, we've had good success in terms of keeping ourselves busy and finding meaningful work um, that we can help sort of our customers with, as well as projects and initiatives that we drive forward ourselves in in the shop here. Yeah, I find it interesting that you started at the mobile space and moved yourself into the IoT space. Um, That was purely uh, by accident uh, as a matter of the technology evolved and you moved into that space or how how did you actually jump that or move into that area? It's an interesting question because I think the, a couple things happened. I mean, the technology definitely advanced and and pulled us in that direction. But um, I think if you dig a little bit deeper, you find that the two spaces are actually intrinsically connected. Um, Really, a lot of the low-cost devices um, out there that enable IoT or drones or a number of the new sort of technologies in emerging um, spaces we see are really just second- and third-generation mobile or cell phone technologies that are starting to be repurposed. So the cell phone or the smartphone made things like accelerometers and touch screens and low power CPUs and other such um, sort of features and devices very, very common. And then within a couple generations of, of those mobile platforms being developed and advanced, the sort of uh, legacy hardware or like the know-how from the hardware and the development started to trickle down and become a lot cheaper. So what's an IoT device today was probably a top-of-the-line uh, cell phone CPU in in 2006, um, but it's available today for four dollars, and 
you know, and, and readily integrated into design. So the two spaces, in my opinion, are sort of intrinsically connected and really IoT was, uh, or the mainstream portion of IoT was somewhat enabled by the trickle-down effect of, of mobile hardware development. Right, that, that certainly makes sense. Um, I'd like to take a step back a little bit and kind of uh, explore what IoT really is. Now, IoT, the definition, is, is the Internet of Things. So, Trent, can you give us a broad definition of what, what this really means? What, what is Internet of Things? Yeah, we've, we've taken it to mean something sort of, sort of very broad yet specific at the same time, I guess. And, mm. you know, in, our, in our world... The IoT movement or Internet of Things really is another term for uh, physical digital integration as far as we're concerned. So what we mean by that is that there's um, obviously a physical world out there that we're all very familiar with and, um, you know, our, have our, our senses and our intuition about. Uh, there's a digital world that, you know, is, is increasingly powerful and, and uh, with cloud computing sort of ubiquitous and low cost. However, um, the integration between those two worlds hasn't been entirely clear or entirely easy until, until now. And so really it's, it's being able to instrument our physical world um, with devices that can relay the information to the digital world, and, and sometimes that's done for industrial purposes, or sometimes that's done for commercial uh, optimization, safety, security. Um, other times it's done for sort of peer entertainment or convenience, but um, the movement doesn't really discriminate in that sense. The goal overall is to make this physical data and analysis available uh, to the digital world. Yeah, it you know, going back in, in my history, um, back in the 80s, we were, had a, a project called FarmTech. Now, that was using a, a series of SB180s and Z80s, uh, microcomputers, all interconnected. And we had to write our own TCP IP stack uh, to communicate. And so you can see the complexity of what we had to do back then. And now we've got much more sophisticated onboard devices Certainly, the the cell phone uh, chips are now available that we can embed on there. Um, so it seems like this whole space is just exploding with the capabilities and technologies blowing up um, in what we can actually achieve. Um, I- IoT is now so big it's divided into three significant segments: uh, IoT in industries, IoT in consumer devices, which is seems to be what you're focused in on. Trent and the IoT and infrastructure. Uh, I have my background is more in the IoT industry. Um, are, are you moving into the IoT industry space, or is the consumer space just so huge that you just can't stop picking away at that? It's an interesting question because the consumer space is definitely huge, and and most of the sort of inbound ideas or entrepreneurs that have an idea for an IoT device tend to be. Uh, consumer or at least business to consumer oriented. So from a business perspective, that obviously drives a lot of the interest in the IoT. However, um, in terms of true value or return on investment um, for for a customer, for someone rolling out an IoT infrastructure program, 
it's often the industrial or, you know, light manufacturing use case um, that has the highest value or sees the highest return on investment because, um, and, and it's often people in kind of the, the mid-tier, large, large organizations have made investments into instrumentation and sensors and things like that um, in, in the millions or billions of dollars over the past 20 years, right? But what's different is all of a sudden some of those same solutions and infrastructure are becoming available to maybe a smaller manufacturer or a local, you know, say even a local bakery or something like that is able to invest uh, a modest amount and optimize their process, manage temperatures, um, maintain storage environments, things like that that weren't really possible. So a lot of the a lot of the high ROI comes from that industry. Yeah, it's, it's that instrumentation, which is really interesting, how we're getting at all that information, being able to pull it into a system and make sense of it. We're going to a break now. We'll be right back. Thanks for talking with us, Trent. Uh, we'll be back again with Trenton and uh, go further into the utility of IoT. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Private equity firms have over $1 trillion to invest. They are the biggest funding source for growing companies. Why do they reject 98% of deals? How do you get the right deal for your company? Join Kevin Fechtmeyer and his partners on the Deal Team 6 to uncover the next winning deal and avoid the financial landmines. Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Business Channel. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Serju Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. We're talking with Trenton Shume of the IoT Design Shop and Finger Food Studios about IoT, the Internet of Things, and how uh, that whole space is evolving and what we can do with it, what we can expect from it. 
and how to build with it from a software technology perspective. So jumping back in um, to where we left off about the IoT uh, segments, um, in, um, within the IoT design shop, are you looking at any specific segment, consumer devices, industrial, or infrastructure? Uh, is there a particular um, audience that you're looking at, or how do you go through and decide what you're working on? Great question, Martin. I think the um, it's a challenge because a lot of times you'll see uh, sometimes really interesting ideas that come come in uh, for consumer or, or B2C um, that uh, are, uh, although novel or an interesting approach, maybe not quite as uh, tangible or easy to understand the return on as, as some of the industrial or manufacturing segments. So we try to balance it. Uh, we see some real, really interesting developments happening now. Uh, p- potentially, um, potential real game changers that are unlocked. And, and the current term we sort of use for it is unlocked um, by the potential of connectivity. Because the um, you know original sort of um, convenience functions or or consumer functions like um, you know managing mail, picking up packages, boxes, things like that even, uh, when you can all of a sudden have a connected key box or a connected drop-off location that's bound to a consumer's account that they can log into um, via their cell phone, things like that, it unlocks a lot of potential sort of in that high-value business-to-consumer space. So that's definitely something we're interested in. I think we see uh, currently one of the biggest growth areas or biggest growth opportunities is definitely that that mid-tier sort of industrial consumer uh, or commercial manufacturing sort of application. Uh, there's there's definitely folks um, who are running mid-tier businesses that benefit a lot from you know quality control and automation, um, being able to monitor their um, performance, their output, that type of thing. And yeah. certainly, you know, it's, it's unlocking things that weren't possible before for a mid-tier organization. And the, the instrumentation uh, gathering of, of the data while you're building something enhances the quality and the output, the end product, the production quality. And that's the industrial side that I've been involved in mostly. It's the instrumentation side, not so much the control side. Um, are, are you seeing or being involved where you're actually going out and connecting these devices and doing control operations on them as well as instrumentation? Yeah, we definitely see that in in uh, sort of the light manufacturing space. So one of the industries that just happens to be big here locally is obviously, and I, and I think around North America and the world right now, is, is you know, and it's a great example, is something like craft craft brewing. So you have a number of craft breweries who are, you know, at the mid-tier, mid-scale sort of commercial range. And okay. the reality for those guys is that they may not have the money to deploy large-scale automation systems from, you know, Rockwell or somebody like that that's got, you know, commercial, but millions of dollars um, worth of infrastructure to do it. But you do see really high-value opportunity in even very, very basic controls like controlling temperature zones. So right. it's hard for um, a small company or a small manufacturer to control temperature throughout their warehouse and whatnot. So first stage is obviously monitoring, which is 
um, you know, I wouldn't say straightforward, but is well understood. But then the second stage being now that most HVAC controls or, or um, you know, even using basic home automation devices and things like that um, are readily available, um, that information that's coming in from the sensors can actually be used in turn to activate controls over um, HVAC, humidity controls, things like that in, in an environment. Um, and that, that wasn't really possible to a small-scale uh, manufacturer, food processor, brewery, even five, ten years ago, right? So is the software that you're writing then uh, integrating that information, that instrumentation from different devices, different sensors, aggregating it into some uh, understanding, allowing a decision or an algorithm to be applied so that you can put out control, tell other systems to behave in a particular way? That's basically it. I mean, if you have, um, say, an environmental control or a couple of zones of heating and cooling in an environment and, uh, you know, using an internet-connected thermostat or a device with an API that exposes uh, the ability to, you know, set the temperatures or just turn the system on and off, and then you scatter um, a series of temperature sensors about those zones and rooms, all of a sudden you have control that you didn't have before um, in a very simple way. So uh, perhaps you're looking through the zone for your coldest region. You want to ensure that your coldest region is never below 68 Fahrenheit. You have six sensors out there, and you're able to base your logic on on sort of analyzing all of the different zones and maintaining so that the, the coldest one is never below 68. That's a really, really basic application. However, that's something that's made relatively trivial now by the Internet of Things and all of the APIs that the different vendors and services provide. So you might end up having to um, write a bit of glue or a bit of logic and, and sort of interpretation. But the ecosystem and the APIs provided by most of those devices already exposes the controls and the data you need to the Internet. So the task becomes simplified down to more of a software-level task that we're all fairly comfortable with compared to a large-scale sort of hardware or wiring or any of that other type of um, sort of operation. Yeah, 20 years ago, you had to worry about all the hardware, all these, well, write the software yourself, of course, and actually building the devices, putting the chips on the, the, the IC cards um, and wiring it all up together. Uh, today, it sounds like all those components are ready-made and available. Is, is that the case? Yeah, that is the case for the most part. I think the... Um you know, one of the things that we say about ourselves in the shop here sort of as a as a joke, but we're we're actually quite serious, is that really our, our job is is we're sort of the plumbers of the internet, right? The the pipes are there, the the intake, the water, the water supply, the sewers are all there. Um what we end up doing is um plumbing that together, uh as well as you know, you get into a variety of scenarios where Maybe you need to make a bit of a custom connection or someone has very right. specific requirements, but you can focus on tailoring that one specific scenario. So maybe they are measuring a certain type of gas output or something like that. Well, you focus on the one sensor that measures that gas 
but then you leverage the backhaul and the systems that you have for getting that data to the internet, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time and charge the customer the whole shot for developing the solution. You can charge them for just the customization component. Right. And when you when you mention the you know these things are connected via the internet or uh, the IP protocol, does it necessarily what what's the scope of connectivity? Now a device could be you know within your factory floor within your home. Connecting to the internet, you know, you you don't want to take it to the extent that you saw in uh, one of the sitcoms where they had you know fellows around the world controlling their lights in their room. Um, Big Bang Theory, I think that was on. Yeah, uh, yep. so, you know, so you get the analogy where you you can enable your entire um, living environment to be exposed, but again, to what end? Uh, so how how do you control? The, the level of the exposure of your devices on, on the internet uh, when you get to that point? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's, it's something that I think uh, needs to be taken, you know, A, needs to be taken seriously, and B, is probably not taken seriously enough today uh, because I think a lot of these technologies are still pretty young and people are kind of um, driving, uh, driving towards price and competitive feature sets as opposed to, uh, security or, or uh, infrastructure capability. So yeah, it seems to be approached with a. Yeah, it seems to be a playful nature right now, rather than a, a serious. You know what? What are the implications of having these devices connected? Absolutely, yeah, and and, and one of the things that we're we're pretty keen on is um, the separation between sort of the local controls and the things that um, you know really belong, say, inside a factory or the the safety and security features that need to be present locally versus what's exposed to the internet and what type of uh, auditing and logging and things like, things like that that you've put in place to ensure that, you know, if an incident does occur, you're also able to figure out how. Because one of the other problems is that by far the vast majority of these devices are very small devices that aren't necessarily running a full OS. There's there's obviously a class of device that runs Linux or runs an OS. Uh, right. But by far, the most small sensors, the light switch controller, the, that type of thing, um, is a very small microcontroller that doesn't have a bunch of uh, you know, disk space for logs or any of that other type of information. So you have an extra kind of layer of complexity because if something like that does get hacked, um, trying to audit it or trying to figure out how and remedy it can be quite daunting because you just don't have the visibility into the device. It's a headless device that costs four dollars that you know connects on Wi-Fi. That's definitely um, you know a risk risk vector for sure. Yeah, and I think we want to get more into those higher risk areas. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, in uh, I think the last segment. But uh, security is you know definitely a, a concern. Um, and as the IoT space grows, um, it, is there one particular space growing faster than others? Well, currently we see activity, um, I think probably one of the biggest growth spaces, and it's, it's for a, a number of good reasons, but um, we definitely see the growth and opportunity in, in cellular connectivity. Uh, the big thing being that there's a number of... Um, you know, mobile virtual network operators and folks like AT&T that have really considered um, what it means to have a, an M2M sort of data plan and a small bandwidth uh, device that 
that uses the cellular network sort of sporadically or in, in low volume. And that's enabling a lot of interesting features on devices because one of the biggest challenges historically for us and, and most of the IoT players has been um, your, your connectivity options, especially in the consumer space, were kind of limited to maybe Wi-Fi or Bluetooth through a phone. But both of those are tricky. Uh, they're ubiquitous technologies, but they're tricky. If someone changes the Wi-Fi password on their router, then their IoT devices go offline or if the phone isn't in range when there's an important message to be sent, then that device is kind of rendered uh, mute. So that's always been a problem. Um, cellular is interesting because uh, you could ship a device to a, a consumer or to a business or to an industrial site uh, as long as they plug that in for you know long enough to charge the internal batteries and, and, and keep it plugged in most of the time. That device will basically stay online with, with very little configuration. So um, definitely, to me, the cellular thing is interesting, and there's um, companies like Particle, Particle.io, that have uh, released, you know, um, a tight ecosystem where they'll have a cellular microcontroller and, you know, sort of control systems, um, along with a $3 a month, uh, one megabyte data plan on a SIM um, that you plug into your uh, Particle Electron, and then, bam, wow. you you power that up and that thing's online really anywhere that they have supported cellular coverage. And, and that changes things a lot. That's, that's really cool. The adoption by the cellular carriers, the broadband spectrum, uh, get, making that available to IoT. Let's dig more into that when we come back after this brief message. Thanks very much, Trent. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866- 
1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Good morning and welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm Martin Lacey from Lacey Software Technology Corporation. And we're talking with Trenton Shumay from the IoT Design Shop and Finger Food Studios. We're going to jump right back into the broadband spectrum, the communication made capable by our local internet carriers, and how this all connects up with the IoT space. Uh, can we continue on, uh, Trent, with that with that thought? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think what's what's really been interesting about. Um, about cellular and sort of the emergence of these options that work for for lower data limits or lower um, lower uh, bandwidth devices has been that it enables us to get uh, data to the internet in a relatively sort of zero configuration fashion. So when we're shipping out a device to someone uh, to install in their facility or their home, um, the issue of uh, binding it to their network or to their phone or to those types of things goes away and, and the device becomes somewhat, in my opinion at least, is somewhat more magical where it's like, hey, I just have to plug this into power and then this data or these sensor inputs or these, this information is going to the internet and it's becoming meaningful and, and, and it's relatively kind of transparent to me. I don't really need to know how. So it's enabled us to do a lot of things. And one of the other definite features um, and it's back to sort of ties back to what I was saying in the beginning too about sort of how mobile has made a lot of this possible too is that there's these alternate mechanisms for getting data to the internet as well. So something as simple as uh, even say a um, USB LTE modem or that type of thing um, actually works just fine when you plug it into a Linux powered IoT device. So all of a sudden that same $5 a month tablet data plan that you're using for your uh, iPad or your Android tablet um, put into a USB key and plugged into a Raspberry Pi, turns that that Pi into a gateway. And so then that can become a hub that's pulling data from all of your sensors in your environment. And it's those types of deployments that's uh, helping us to bring the cost down and make this accessible to even the small to medium enterprise where at one point, you know, that type of connectivity would have been a very, very expensive proposition. But today, we can kind of uh, dual-purpose uh, consumer-grade data plans or specific machine-to-machine data plans along with some of these devices to act as hubs. And we're getting data from a variety of sources up to the Internet in a really, really cost-effective manner. Oh, that's really quite cool. Uh, so you've got your core devices with an Internet capability having a much larger or much more robust OS, connecting up with the other devices, smaller, less capable, and providing, using that, uh, the, the first device as a gateway to get to the internet and share that instrumented data. Is that, is that the, that's, that's just, the thrust of it? Yeah, yeah, that's just it. And there's actually another tier that's um, uh, emerging really quickly to make that even easier. So, a lot of the cloud service providers, uh, Microsoft Azure and uh, the AWS IoT cloud uh, from Amazon as well as uh, Google, um, are actually uh, creating gateway software and providing that um, as sort of open source or free of charge um, application 
software that you can put onto your gateway device. So if your ultimate destination, say, is the Amazon Web Services IoT Cloud, they already have integrations for a lot of popular sort of Linux microcontrollers, whether it be the Raspberry Pi or something of a similar class, whereby if you put a little bit of glue code in there to pull your sensors and your devices, um, the Amazon open source stack will take care of getting all that data to the cloud and uh, properly timestamped and, and authenticated and everything on your behalf. So you don't need to build that infrastructure anymore um, to get a variety of sensor data up to the Internet. Wow, is that ever awesome. That used to be so much work. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. And, 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 and I think, you know, we touched a little bit on security, but that's another uh, really important thing because at that point, the sort of gateway uh, from your local data, which we, you know, consider fairly secure because it's on-premise and whatnot, to the cloud is, is actually being um, provided or, or um, at least, um, you know, maintained, managed by fairly experienced uh, cloud service providers. Obviously, the security team at, at Microsoft or Amazon is uh, definitely much more sophisticated than um, what you're able to produce um, sort of as an independent developer. Yes, and but it's it's great that as a developer, all we have to worry about is gathering all that instrumented, instrumented data and making sense of it, uh, working up the value chain, uh, analyzing the data and doing writing the algorithms to do some value add, uh, turning on a switch if that's what that requires, uh, or controlling the temperature uh, of a room uh, as you walk into it. These are all absolutely. You know, so, so that's the kind of software that you're you're really having to write. It's not all the infrastructure; it's the value add, make something interesting. That yeah, that's correct. And I mean, an extreme example of that also is um, I, I mentioned Particle.io in the last segment. So Particle yes. um, actually has a complete cloud infrastructure. They they come at it assuming that. Maybe you're a small developer, or maybe you're you're building a prototype device, or or um, you're you know a startup, and so they provide the entire um, end-to-end backbone for getting your data to the internet to the point where um, the way you interact is you simply expose events in your uh, firmware on your actual device, which means I want to send this data up to the particle cloud, and then you expose function calls that you can call remotely from the particle cloud back to your individual device. And so your your entire interface of exposing your data and publishing your data boils down to just a little bit of markup in your code, and then these functions are available to call, and, and you can hit each of your devices independently and send data back and forth. Wow. And what, what language do you use? So most of the time, uh, and, and this is a really interesting question because there's already a shift happening. Currently, most of the time, most of these devices are, are C-based or right. use a, a scripting language sort of derived from C. Uh, so the syntax is, is very much C or C++ for the most part. Familiar um, to old-time developers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. It, for me, in particular, too, it sort of pulled me uh, back into into the fray because a lot of the work I had done, you know, earlier in my career on drivers or low-level software and stuff like that, uh, became completely relevant again um, right. as this next generation of, of uh, microcontrollers and devices came up. Um, but the other thing that's happening right now, though, which I think is also 
equally interesting, maybe even more relevant, is um, we are also starting to see the emergence still of a lot of um, sort of scripting and scripted language interpreters showing up on the kind of low to mid-tier of these devices, which wasn't previously possible. So right. the devices used to be so small that the firmware, you know, had to be really compiled down and fairly optimal to work. Uh, but now we're seeing a class of device come out that can, say, run MicroPython. So oh, really? it's no longer a purely compiled language environment. You can have MicroPython scripts that um, you upload to the device, and then uh, the programming process is as simple as plugging your MicroPython device in. It shows up as a USB drive on your your computer, your Mac, your PC, or a Linux computer. Um, you write the code, you save the file. As soon as you save your files, uh, that triggers the interpreter to reload and reboot. And so then uh, putting new firmware on there is as simple as saving a file to the device, and then it loads it and runs that Python script. So that's coming on pretty quickly now, and I think it's going to be interesting because we're seeing that for Python, JavaScript, some of the other um, you know popular scripting languages, and, and there's definitely advantages to it um, because you don't necessarily have to have a whole compiler chain and everything running offline to to create new firmware. It's it's more a matter of updating a text file and rebooting the device. Do you actually have to reboot it, or does the OS or the the operating system? Uh, detect it and, and just reintegrate it to the current running environment. Kind of like what uh, the IIS web, websites do nowadays when you upload right. a new one. Yeah, it, it depends. I mean, a lot of them can reload. Um, the one thing is that on a lot of these microcontrollers, the, the boot time is, is maybe just a couple of seconds. So it often defaults to being the easiest thing to do is to just hit reset internally right. and then the microcontroller is back online in, in two or three seconds anyway. So they sort of take the easy path. The easy path that back to a, a known steady state. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so what kind of de- uh, interfaces are exposed on these devices then? Yeah, it's, it's usually, um, it's not entirely standard, but it's usually, uh, you, you'll have a suite of probably four or five sort of styles of interfaces. So the most direct is GPIO, which is general purpose IO. So you'll have pins that are uh, digital controls for input and output, and then analog controls um, for input and output as well. So you can read analog voltages, you can set analog voltages, you can read digital states on switches and, and, and whatnot. Um, one, one tier up from that is that you'll have um, protocol sort of based interfaces and buses on the device. So very common there is I2C or SPI, which is, uh, they're both sort of a serial interface. So once you've got, uh, so it's very common, there's a variety of sensor types out there, but say you had something like a temperature sensor, an accelerometer, there will usually be variants of it that are I2C or SPI based. And as long as you wire that sensor into the pins on the microcontroller properly, then you've got an interface to it, and there will be a simple serial protocol for pulling the device, reading the temperature and humidity off of it, maybe setting its um, accuracy or, or range, that type of thing. Um, and it's just a very seri- simple serial back and forth. And then um, sort of next tier up or, or where you start to get into sort of the higher speed, higher uh, bandwidth stuff is that 
there will be multiple UARTs on most of these devices, which you can use for higher speed communication as well as for USB and connecting to, um, you know, different peripherals or a desktop computer or whatever. So generally they have everything from the lowest level analog and, and sort of digital inputs all the way up to USB connectivity. Um, when it goes to sort of wireless and internet connections, almost always that's via uh, a module on board that's connected across one of the buses. So, uh, so, you need another de- so you need another device, another piece of hardware on there to do that. Most typically, uh, sometimes uh, we're we're seeing. Well, I mean, not sometimes. We're seeing more and more integrated modules where maybe a uh, uh, entire system on a chip contains um, your microcontroller as well as Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, or you know, some other radio. Uh, there, there's definitely more of that, um, but there's also still the, the the more common or more legacy format is that. Um, you know, your Wi-Fi adapter might be connected across uh, SPI or something. And uh, okay, serial we, we, yeah. we have to go to a break now, Trent. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, we'll come no back yeah. very quickly. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In this fast-paced, technologically driven world of business, the stress can be crushing. It's exhausting business leaders and burning out good employees. It is not enough to work from the top down. We must now learn to work from the inside out. Listen to Innovative Mindful Solutions with Terry Geller. We will discuss ways to transform roadblocking emotions using mindful-based tools you can incorporate into your business and your life right now. Don't stress. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America business channel moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes there is always something going on many times nobody else knows exactly what you're going through if you are experiencing pain or loss even something unexplained that is missing in your life you'll want to tune into go for it with host joe hausman joe and her guests will show you laughter and love Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm Martin Lacey, and today we're talking with Trenton Shumay. Uh, from the IoT Design Shop and Fingered Food Studios. 
we're starting to get into the uh, software development side of it, how you actually build applications with this. I want to dig into that before we run out of time. So, Trent, can you tell us a bit about the software development environment that you're currently working in, how you get going with it? What, what tools do you use? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, and, and I think the great news here is that it's, it's probably easier than ever before. I, I think the by far the sort of most common or, or the gateway drug of IoT development is sort of um, Arduino. So Arduino and Raspberry Pi um, are both open source initiatives that combine um, hardware and software and an operating system and a bunch of know-how and a community that is super, super supportive and, and helps people get up to speed very, very quickly. So uh, Arduino, for example, um, is a very simple sort of C-based um, scripting programming language that allows you to control any microcontrollers that run the Arduino um, bootloader and OS. And, and, and that includes everything from a very, very basic, you know, 50-cent microcontroller all the way up to uh, a device that might have Wi-Fi or might have cellular on it and uh, creates a programming interface in an environment that makes all those devices look very, very similar, or at least the, the know-how um, from developing on one of the devices, uh, you know, gets you uh, a great head start on your next, your next project, as well as, um, you know, there's companies like SparkFun, Adafruit, and Seed Studio that also create uh, all the different sensors and components and things that you might need to integrate uh, for an IoT device, along with the software stack and the libraries that you can integrate into the Arduino environment to drive those devices. So you might purchase a temperature sensor from Adafruit, um, and then there will be a tutorial and a GitHub project it gives you all the source code and everything you need to initialize that sensor and pull data from it in on an Arduino. And, and that kind of really closes the gap. So you can go shopping on the site and, and look at the characteristics or the performance or the, you know, uh, temperature range, whatever it is that you need uh, for your application, uh, and be relatively assured that integration is really going to be a non-issue at that point. So you could actually, as a hobbyist, start off and build a prototype and bring that right to commercial uh, capability. Absolutely, because the other thing that drives the, you know, Arduino and companies uh, like Adafruit, SparkFun, and the others is that they are all 100% open source initiatives. So not only are the products available and the software available, but the schematics, the board layouts, the hardware information is all available too. And so you can study that and incorporate that into your own hardware designs and bake you know, you, you might start by prototyping with off-the-shelf sensors and breakout boards and things that lets you wire this up. Um, but then you'll be given enough information to bake that down into a board or into a final design uh, that you can then, uh, you know, build in a cost-effective manner and put inside of your, your um, device. So your hobbyists could say, for instance, if they're interested to build a home management system, could start building out devices to control door locks, um, monitor temperature sensors, build that at home, have that information pushed up to the cloud, say up to Amazon cloud, and then down to their own uh, cellular uh, phone, their own cellular device, and be able to control and monitor that. Is, is that yeah. the... It's it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing because really, for say a, a, a moderately experienced software developer or some or a technologist, 
that's that's maybe a week long project now, which is crazy. That is just totally wicked. I mean, the things you yeah, can do with that. It's absolutely phenomenal, and, and and there's some great parts out there too. Like even uh, one of my favorite tools is is a really really simple uh, power bar that has pins on it for a microcontroller to control the sockets on and off. So without right. any real serious wiring or commitment, um, you can prototype these devices where a little wireless microcontroller is uh, is able to turn the sockets on a power bar on and off, and that gives you all kinds of potential. You know, just with a twenty dollar device. Right. I mean, I can just think off the top of my head, you've got uh, enough to do a timer for a, uh, a plant uh, if you're you know, having your own garden um, or sure. running some form of large-scale uh, plant facility, controlling the lights right there sure. out of the box, you know, a week's worth of work and a handful of dollars and you're ready to go. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the most amazing thing about what's happening right now. And are, are are you getting into those kind of areas with the IoT design shop? Yeah, that's that's really been the, this you know the technology that we've been able to leverage. And as we mentioned in the earlier segment, is that especially for sort of small or light manufacturing folks like that that don't have major infrastructure dollars, those types of tools are sufficient. You know what I mean? Hey, we need to control a lighter. We need to control a heater in this uh, zone of the the shop or the brewery or the bakery. Um, yeah. Yeah, a power bar connected to the internet with uh, a consumer device plugged into it is perfectly sufficient to solve that problem um, as long as you monitor it with a temperature sensor and control it sort of in a sensible manner. I mean, you're, you're good to go. Wow. So there's yeah, the, the capability, the options out there for enhancing any business is really just at the business's decision to do so. This has been an yeah, awesome sure. conversation. Um, I want to thank you, Trent, for coming on online with us today. Um, we've learned a lot. Uh, hopefully, there will be a number of developers in Sense to go out and start tinkering with this new technology. Um, we've been talking with Trenton Shume from the uh, IoT Design Shop and Finger Food Studios. Thank you again, Trenton, for coming on our show. Um, next week, we're going to be moving on to service-oriented architecture and microservices. We'll be diving in a little deeper uh, into the development of software as a service, service-oriented architectures, microservices, and how to build these modern implementations. As you can see, they all these talks are coming together. They're all interweaving. Uh, we'll see how um, the IoT space makes use of service-oriented architecture, going back into blockchain, how blockchain is adopting IoT. We'll be bringing back in the folks from the EXO Foundation and talking about what they're doing with IoT. So please stick with us. Come back next week and join us for service-oriented architecture and microservices. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.